these Sunday mornings, we are looking at Acts chapter 17. We first looked at Acts 2 and saw how the New Testament gospel was preached to religious people. And now we are looking at Paul in Athens and how the gospel, the Christian gospel, is presented to people who have no understanding of Jesus Christ at all. And so we come this morning to verse 27. This is the ninth message. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And Luke is so helpful here as we read this chapter. It's a compression, a praise, a summary of a, a sermon that probably lasted about half an hour. And uh, what Luke is recording then is very relevant to us today. He sailed from Jerusalem. He's gone through Asia Minor, which is today called Turkey, and across to Greece. And he comes to Athens, one of the great cities of the world at that time. The heart of what was called Hellenism. Greek thinking, Greek philosophy, Greek morality, Greek religion, which had enormous influence which lasted probably for 2,000 years. Um, For example, a city like Edinburgh was once referred to as the Athens of the North, and many other cities claimed that appellation. The original Greek city of Athens was distinguished as a place which had no grasp of Christianity, almost no grasp at all. But we're told there was a synagogue there, and for 200 years then the Old Testament scriptures had been translated uh, into Greek in in what was called the Septuagint. But Paul was the first Christian um, on a mission. He was the first evangelist who had ever gone to Athens. So it was a pagan stronghold with a veneer of uh, culture, just like Aberystwyth. Uh, It was a city also full of people's gods, temples and altars and priests and priestesses. And so when he faced this 20 or 30 people on the Areopagus on Mars Hill, he could presume that they had no understanding of Christianity at all. Um, They were the watch committee, the recognized guardians of public morality, men who licensed new speakers who came in like Paul had come in uninvited, unannounced, and then he'd stood up in the marketplace, and uh, then he'd begun to preach, and people were drawn to him, and there was a crowd there, and so they sent for him, and he began respectfully enough. He uh, then quickly tells them that the God he proclaims to them is the sole creator of the universe, and that he has created every member of the Areopagus, all these aristocrats, and he has created the slave as well as his wealthy master, every single nation. He has created and determines its history. He's in control of Greece, Jehovah God as a nation, as a, a people of a million individuals, their history, their victory, their fall. He's not a, a titular head, an acting head like the queen is. He reigns. He's in charge. He's in charge of our times He's given me this word for you today, and he's brought you here to hear it. You can't ever escape from the providence 
of God. And so uh, it was a humbling and a controversial doctrine for these proud Greeks to hear it from a Jew. They considered themselves to be a special race, a master race. But in the eyes of the God whom Paul was preaching to them, they were on the same level as any God-made race. The Asians, the Africans, the Aborigines, all nations created, sustained by the God and Father of the Jewish Jesus of Nazareth. And every race, a fallen race, and every race needing redemption. That was a hard truth to swallow, but there were more, more hard, harder truths to follow. He told them that God's purpose in their creation was this, that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and perhaps find him. And they were to stop thinking, well, um, I think of God like this. They weren't, they weren't to, to do that. They were to abandon all the vain traditions they had received from their fathers. And the old ceremonies that they went through uh, for a boy coming of age or a child born, they weren't helpful. And they were to learn what was their chief end in life. And your chief end in life, in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why they were conceived in their mother's wombs, and that's why God kept them alive until this moment to seek exclusively, to focus in, to home in on the God that Paul was preaching to them, to reach out for him and find him. Uh, God is not like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. He's not elusive. If you seek him seriously, you will find God. No one has ever determined to seek God and failed to find him. Many have made half-hearted attempts and they've given up. But uh, you are surrounded today by uh, a congregation of men and women who've sought and found God. Seeking God is not like trying to swim the channel. It's not like trying to climb Everest or run a, a four-minute mile. It's, uh, there were people here and they weren't seeking God and they found him not seeking him. They weren't diligent at all. They were like a man Jesus spoke about who had a bag in his hand and a shovel over his shoulder and he went to some deserted field and he dug a hole to bury it and he went down nine inches, he went down a foot and his spade hit something and it was rectangle, it was the lid, it was a box. And he loosened and he pulled out this box. It was as heavy as lead. And he did all rusted and he levered and finally it opened. And there was gold and silver and tiaras and rubies and necklaces and strings of pearls and gems of various sizes. The, the, the chest was full of treasure. That morning he had set out then with his rubbish and his spade. He never determined that that day he would find treasure. But God directed his paths. God brought him to a certain place. An unpromising place. And he didn't stop at nine inches. He went down another three until he found the treasure. And it was for many of you. You got up one day and went into a daily routine. Just what you do every day. Breakfast, off to work, talk to friends. You didn't think for a moment that you would find religion that day. I heard a man this week. His name was is David, 
And when he was 13, he was helping his father polish his father's pride and joy, a Red Rover car. It was a Sunday. His mother had gone to church. And uh, he was polishing the car with his father. When I grow up, I'm going to have a car just like Daddy. I'm going to have a car like this, he said. And he was so glad he didn't have to go to church like his mother. And that night he went to church. And he heard about Jesus Christ. And his life was changed. From the morning until the evening. He found treasure that night. Because in Jesus Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. Don't you want treasures of wisdom and knowledge? And he had abundant life, and he pitied his small ambitions. The life of God filled him. This week he was speaking four mornings to 1,200 people in the great hall at Aberystwyth. Numbers of you were just like him in that you weren't seeking God at all. But God organized your life and you found him. The altogether lovely one. More you did not need. Less would not have satisfied you. But what to those who find are this? No tongue nor pen can show the love of Jesus what it is. None but his loved ones know God is findable. And so Paul tells them in that, this text that's before us, God is not far, not far from each of us. You don't need to go to the Holy Land to find him. You don't need to buy a, a, a ticket and fly to India and go up the Himalayas and find a cave with a holy man in it and he will tell you what life's all about. You don't need to go to the Outer Hebrides. You don't need to go to Holland. He's not hiding away. He's found by those who really weren't seeking him. With any seriousness, grace perforates our lives. And we're changed. And uh, people who are carrying on their daily duties and family and work and work and family and then TV in the evenings and so on and then a, a week's holiday in West Wales. Without the thought of God. And then something happens. In the morning they were atheists. In the afternoon they were agnostic. In the night they said, I believe in God. And that's what it will be like for those of you who are serious about uh, seeking for God. Uh, seeking for God. You're not seeking now principles of life like truth and uh, meaning and fulfillment and virtue. But you are in the business of seeking for the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, the Creator, to know Him and trust Him and serve Him and love Him, to have and to hold. You want Him. And if God is dealing with you, um, He doesn't play games with us. He doesn't uh, give us a desire and tantalize and just ignore us for years. But God made the nations of the world and sends his servants to Athens and to Abba and uh, 
that men would seek him and perhaps reach out, reach out and find him. How are we to seek for God? Well, firstly, we are to seek for God with our minds. We are to think, come away now from this fantasy world of hours of watching a flickering television station. Come away from the shadowlands to light and reality and truth. Come, come, think. You brought your brains with you, haven't you, today now? Because you're going to need to think. Um, All your brain. Stop vegetating. Say to yourself, I've lived in this world now for many years and I still don't know God for myself. It's growingly obvious this world couldn't have come about by luck. By chance. For everywhere I see design and I see reliability and I see order and purpose. And more than that, I see glory, magnificence in the sunsets and in the starlings. And I know with my conscience that there is right things to do and there are wrong things I shouldn't do. And the God who made it, who made this world, is obviously not a, a God of malice and malevolence and mean and cruel. Men are. Men do horrible things to other men and women and animals and the world groans. Something bad has happened, but I can't blame God if we're not puppets and if we have a a freedom that's built into our own responsibility. And yet we see man's vileness, don't we? Every prospect pleases and only man is vile. Well, who is God? How can I know him? How can I have some understanding of God? And I'm saying that's, that's where you start. You start by using your minds. Not rubbishing the thought of God as uh, Jurassic Park fantasy. Not like that. It, it's, it's serious, isn't it? So you seek God with your mind, and then secondly you seek God with your souls. And that is, you have a sense of the weight of God. A sense of deity, of the divine, of, of your heart's affections now. To know more than, more than the life of celebrities, more than OK magazine, more than sportsmen, more than TV personalities and politicians and the royal family and Hollywood and music groups. And, ah, it seems a shallow in increasingly shallow world to you and you feel you are more than just a marvellous organic machine you're more than that and you're not like animals you're not like your household pets when you go home today dog doesn't say how did he preach well today your dog is not interested in things like that at all the goldfish doesn't come and look out at you and inquire the fish, the gulls, they're no help in, in telling you who you are. To know who you are, you, you're made in God's image and made in God's likeness. And so in discovering God, you discover yourself. We're, we're not naked monkeys. There's a, a higher power. There's a nobler end 
for life. We, we have a conscience, but we also have religious affections. And the chief command is to love the Lord your God. And to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the world that God has made. So you seek him um, with your mind, you do thinking, and you seek him with your souls, because you're not just body, you are soul too. And then you seek him with your bodies. All right then. What do I mean? Well, he was telling these people on Mars Hill they had to get out of their space. They had to get out of their comfort zones and take to the road. And that's what he said to all the people in Athens. You start to seek for real religion in Athens. And what you do? Well, what would you do if you were in Athens? You'd go to the sort of uh, the Westminster Abbey or um, the Canterbury Cathedral where the Archbishop is. You'd go to the Temple of Athena who is the goddess of, of Athens. And you'd learn about her from the murals on the walls. She sprung, fully grown and clothed in armor out of her father Zeus's forehead. And uh, she was the goddess of Athens and the goddess of handicrafts and agriculture. And they said she'd invented the bridle and so domesticated the horse. And she invented the trumpet and the flute and the pot and the rake and the ship. So you began your search for God there and you looked and you listened. All a bit mythological, isn't it? Not very helpful. All a bit superficial, drenched in pride that they were the top. They were the top God. Not for you. So you went on. You thought, well, why go to the daughter? Let me go to the father. And so you went to Zeus's temple. And his priest told you he was lord of the sky, the rain god, and that his weapon was the thunderbolt. He didn't touch your heart. You weren't drawn to him. He left you cold. And on you went, then calling in one temple with your body. You went down the streets and saw the shrines there. And there was the temple of Poseidon, the brother of Zeus and the god of the sea, worshipped by seamen, the second most powerful god. And there was Hades, the god of the underworld, ruling over the dead, the god of wealth. Oh, you want to be, if you want to. A fine chariot and white horses and a big house overlooking the sea. This is the God for you, they said to you. But your problem wasn't money. Or if you wanted sex, there was Aphrodite, the goddess of love and desire and beauty. And the women priestesses in the temple gave you a black eye and nodded to you and you couldn't get out fast enough. And on you walked, on you walked from one place. You were seeking, you were seeking. Hera, the goddess of marriage and childbirth, not for you. Apollo, the god of music and the god of healing. And the place was full of loud music and groans and weeping as people brought their children and brought their husbands and wives to that place for healing. And you couldn't stay there for long. You were seeking, but you hadn't found anyone who was omnipotent, but also compassionate who was righteous and straight, but was also merciful, who was accessible, but was all high and holy and lifted up. There must be one. 
There must be one. And you went and you went. You walked. You searched the streets of Athens and you went to the poorer part where the humble people lived. And you heard singing one day. And they were singing these words, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. You peeped around the door and there was just a group of people there. And there was a man there and he had some scrolls and he was reading the scrolls and he was teaching them. And there were no altars and there were no priests and no priestesses and there were no statues or icons or paintings on the wall. It was just whitewashed walls, simplicity. It was there. And you sat in the back seat and you listened. And the leader had no distinctive dress. But he spoke of the God who in times past had spoken to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days had spoken to us by Jesus Christ. And he called him the Son of God. God had so loved the world that he had given his only begotten Son. He would spoken and communicated through these servants of his. But now he came very, very close. And uh, veiled in flesh the Godhead. See him, you were told. And uh, he spoke about his life and death. We deserve eternal death because we're sinners. But Jesus Christ, because of his love for us, he came and he died for us. He took our judgment. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead and he lives. And he appeared for 40 days then to all sorts of his disciples, the the people he'd gathered round him, about 500 of them. And he met them, he walked with them by, on the road seven miles to Emmaus. And um, they saw him one day early in the morning by the side of the lake and he had made a fire. He gathered wood and he cooked bread and he had caught fish and he'd, they could smell the fish and they hurried and ate with him and drank with him. There, ghosts don't do that sort of thing. And he told them, Hung around because uh, soon I'm going to pour out on you God the Holy Spirit. And he's going to come and he's going to give you courage and understanding and illumination and life. And he's going to change you and he's going to give you stickability and perseverance. And ten days later that's exactly what happened. Uh, Peter and the 120 that were there in Jerusalem, the men, they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter preached. And 3,000 people believed what he told them about, about the Lord Jesus. They turned from their sins and they joined them. There was extraordinary growth there. And since that time, they've gone out, out and out. A centrifugal force sends you out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost corners of the earth and they went across the Mediterranean and they went to Ethiopia and as far as India and from Turkey to Greece to Rome and they were filling Europe with a knowledge of God's glory and it wasn't long before sailors came to buy Welsh gold and furs and sell them wine and silk garments and spooked on the beach here just uh, hundred yards from where I'm standing and you're sitting and 
They spoke in the evenings after they'd huddled for prices and almost 2,000 years ago the gospel came. The good news has been here. And you heard it. You heard it there in Athens in that group of slaves and young people and families and some soldiers and others and there were always new people coming in and it was growing and they were looking for new places to meet. And something happened in your heart. You, you were whole. That's what you were looking for all your life. You were prepared for this. You were directed to this place. It was true. An event of recognition took place in your mind and in your affections. And these people, you knew they were going to be your brothers and sisters forever. You were were going to be joined to them. They weren't all nice people. (laughs) Some were awkward. And some were inconsistent. And some would break your heart. But many would love you. And uh, you'd bear the burdens of the old people and the weak people. And they'd be such a strength to you. And you'd live the Christian life together in solidarity with these people. So I've told you how you seek God. That you seek God with your mind and with your thinking. And you seek God then um, with your soul and your affections. And you seek God with your body. You go, you go to a place of worship. You, you're so nervous. But you climb the steps and you come and you sit and, and listen. And then fourthly, I want to say, in the word of God, you seek God for the rest of your life. I want to give every encouragement to people to come to the services and hear the word of God preached and never be absent and listen intently and pick up a a copy of the sermon afterwards and take it home and, and read it and seek to learn and obey God and ask God for a, a, a better grasp of him and ask God for greater trust in him and knock for entry into the deepest fellowship. And I think uh, in, in those requests and in those yearnings is saving faith. I think that you've really become a Christian when, when that pattern is there in your life, in the seeking when God may be found. But I think there's something. I think there's something more wonderful than men and women God. And reaching out. Wee little specks. Reaching out to the mighty creator of heavens. The earth. And finding him, what could be more wonderful than that? Well, I tell you, it is this great God seeking us. I find in Scripture, the Good Shepherd says that's why he came to seek and to save lost men and women. He's seeking you uh, in a man standing in Athens marketplace, uh, speaking to the crowd there, and then facing uh, a group of philosophers on Mars Hill. And there's a man called Dionysius, 
We read about him in the last verses of this chapter. And he came to be a Christian, listening to Paul in that court. He's seeking you in the testimony of your family and in the testimony of your friends, in the preaching of the gospel, in the offer of forgiveness. The vilest of you who truly believes in Jesus new life and pardon can receive from him. He's seeking you in the prayers of your family and friends. He's seeking you in the Bible and in the books you read to help you to understand the the Bible. He's seeking you in the providences that you've met in your life. The heartache, the unrequited love, the guy who left you to raise the children by yourself. He's seeking you in the lump and the operation and the chemo. He's seeking you in the losses and he's seeking you in the wonderful blessings of health and friendship. He's seeking you. And that's why you're here today. I'm afraid that a great deal of what religious people refer to as their seeking is seeking for a better invitation than they've had so far. You know, they've, they've learned it. Ah, they've got their excuse now. I say, how are things with you? Oh, I'm seeking, pastor. They say, I'm seeking. What are you seeking? They want to hear the gospel with more excitement. They're seeking goose pimples. They're seeking an electric current going up and down their spines. They're seeking floods of joy. They want to feel it more deeply. They want to hear it more persuasively so they won't have to take that lonely, isolated decision getting down on their knees and phrasing their own need and telling God that they want him and they need him and they're going to give their lives to him without anyone else in the family having any understanding of what's going on. Now I'm telling you the Lord Jesus Christ is not somebody that you have to seek for. As if he were lost as if he's on the top of Plinlimon somewhere in a little cabin or that he's in the Bible belt of the States or he's behind some granite walls in a cell in Scotland or that you find him on a religious channel on television. He's not far. So that you've got to seek him because in the preaching of the gospel he's near us He's near us. In the word of faith we preach, the word is nigh you. And your task and your obligation is not not to go out seeking him and saying, oh, really, I'm just seeking him, Pastor. It's so difficult, isn't it, to, to find Jesus? He is seeking you. And he's so near that as you hear what I'm saying to you, 
He's seeking you right now. So you don't need to go away from where you are. You, you, you mustn't say, well, I'll seek you tonight. I'll seek you next week. I'll go to Word Alive. I'll really go to all the meetings in the Amberesters Conference next year. There's no need to leave without him. He's not to be sought for at all. He's here. He's dealing with you. And he's the one seeking you. And when he speaks to uh, people who are not yet Christians, he doesn't say to them, seek, and say that at all. He's not saying go in and in, and in and in, and in and in and in to the depths of your experience. Look for the hero inside yourself. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm here. You come to me. You come to me now. And he's come here because he's seeking for you. You're not seeking, you're seeking. He's not seeking more intense seeking or deeply emotional seeking or weepy seeking or sighing seeking. He's watching. Are you receiving him? As your great teacher from now on. He's not going to say anything wrong. You're seeking him as the Lamb of God. Who's going to take away your sin. You're seeking him as your sovereign protector. Your king. Your your wonderful shepherd. He's saying you, you come to him. You come. You enter the kingdom of God by the door. He's the door. He's not saying to you, well, keep looking for the door. He's the door. It's right before you. You must enter through this door. So what should we as Christians be seeking? The you, Paul says, you, you seek. What should we be pleading for? Well, we should be seeking for the divine fulfillment of every promise God has made. That's what we're seeking for as Christians every day and for the rest of our lives. Um, We should, as we go to God, we say to God, do I have a promise? I don't mean do I have one emotionally, do I have one that zaps me, that makes me weep, that makes me joyful. It's not one that... takes all my strength. There are such experiences. There are such experiences. But uh, that's not my concern. Is there, this is the book, this is the Bible. Are there promises in this book that God has made to a person like me? Uh, Is there an offer that God says, if you come just as you are to me, I will in no wise cast you out? Is is that promise? Yes, that's in the Bible, that offer. And are there great and precious promises that he makes to those who found him, to us Christians? 
they are the limitations of God's obligation to us for the rest of our lives. What he's promised, he's going to give. He doesn't promise you'll all get A grades at A level, or you'll get nine or ten good grades at GCSEs. He's not promising that you'll be cured of every ailment that you have. Uh, He's not promising you safety when you play soccer. He's not promised you a Mercedes and uh, marriage and children and a long life. He's not promised that he'll give a a mighty religious awakening in, in our lifetime. There are no promises that God has bound himself to like that. But oh, he's made better promises that he will work all things together for your good. That nothing will ever separate you from his love. That all grace will always abound to you. That he will supply all your needs richly according to his riches in Jesus Christ. That you will be able to do all things that he requires from you through Christ who strengthens you. That you can learn in whatsoever state you are to be content that the good work he's begun in you in that little chapel in Aberystwyth, he'll go on and go on and go on performing it and helping you all through your lives. What, what he's promised there, he'll keep. Infallibly. And that's what we are to seek for. Lord, you promise now. Give me peace. Give me strength. Help me now because you promised. You're going to be with me. You're going to bless me. You're going to provide for me. And I'm saying for every expectation you have for the future and every confidence you must have promises like that. Which God says, yes and amen to because they're covenant promises that he has established. So the Christian life, oh well, come and join us. It's a life of ethical stringency. It's a life of self-denial. It's a life of loving our neighbors as ourselves. The burden we bear will be heavy. He'll give us grace to carry it. He lays down principle upon principle, precept upon precept, church life, family life, life before the watching world, how to handle our enemies. And when Jesus opened this up in the Sermon on the Mount and his disciples heard him, they just looked aghast, young fellows, student age fellows, they just, how in the world can I live like this? I can't live like this. How is it possible for me to live like this? Seek, Jesus said. Seek and and you'll find. Go to God and say, "I, I can't do it. Only through you. Only by your grace. Only by Uh, divine power and enabling in my heart, in my life. Only in that way can I live in the way you want me to live. You seek it. Seek it from God. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. It's It's a long road. It's a narrow path. But he'll help you. We're being challenged this morning then as to what is our Chief commitment. What are we concerned about most in life? Are we hungering, thirsting for a righteous life? Do you want to say, for me to live is Jesus Christ? How committed are you? Do you say, 
this one thing I, I do? And if not, why not? What's more important than a life that gives honor to God? A life that seeks to glorify him and enjoy him. You say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, not to money or fame or sex or excitement, but to thee. Be that kind of man. Be a proper Christian boy, a proper proper Christian girl. Be a proper Christian father and mother. Jesus doesn't say you're going to be healed of every illness. He doesn't say you're going to be healthy and wealthy and live a long time. But he'll say he'll give you energy for the whole path, that whole way that takes you to God. So there are two classes of people here this morning, and I don't know who they are, but I know what some of you profess. And my word then to you, both classes, goes in different directions. Those of you who are saved, I say to you, seek. Go on seeking. Seek the fulfillment of God's promises in you. Seek obedience and seek love. And to those of you who are not yet Christians, I don't say to you, seek. I say, take him. Take Jesus. Take him. In turning from your sins and your unbelief, And taking him as your great teacher and your Lord and your Savior. Believe on him. And that's the biblical order, strangely enough, that the Lord's people are to seek. To seek God. Seek to please him more and more and more. And and believers are to take. To take. The Jesus who is freely offered to us in the gospel. Lord, bless your word to us now and help us to understand it and help us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.